And welcome to the most emotionally confusing Sunday of the year. Is that not how you feel about Palm Sunday? That's how I feel every year at Palm Sunday. I come to this Sunday and it's always emotionally confusing to me. Let me explain what I mean by that. On the one hand, we just have a palm parade, celebration and exciting songs. Every time I hear praises rising, like it just gets exciting to me. And you see the kids waving palm branches, reenacting the, the initial entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem where people are proclaiming he's the king and, and it's exciting and it's happy and it's yes. And then at the very same moment, it's the week of the death of our Savior. It's exciting, and then it, this exciting celebration, this parade, is actually the tipping point that brings about the events that culminate in the death of our Savior. Do you see how that's confusing? Most Sundays, right, we kind of come in with whatever's going on in our week, and we reflect maybe on our, our sin, and we reflect on who God is, and, and, and the hope is that the entire service would lead us to a place of encouragement, of being reminded of what we have in Christ, and we go out from here excited and looking forward to the opportunities that God has in front of us, and yet Palm Sunday does the exact opposite. Palm Sunday starts out with a party and a parade. It starts out with a celebration and leads us into the week of suffering and ending in the crucifixion. Jesus even says in verse 23 of the passage you just heard read, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if that phrase sounds a little familiar to you, all throughout the rest of the Gospels, as we've studied Mark for the last number of months, you might have heard him say things over and over again, like, my time has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. Until now, Palm Sunday is what brings that hour of suffering upon him. That while this crowd is singing praise to Jesus, celebrating his arrival, there's another crowd. And it's the crowd of the religious and political leaders who are over on the side hatching a plot how they might arrest and murder Jesus. And the crazy thing about the entire thing is Jesus knew it. It didn't surprise him. This is the very reason I came, he said. We just heard it read. That he knew this was his purpose. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you find that in the middle of this parade, as the people are celebrating and singing and he's making his way to Jerusalem, it says that in the middle of that parade, in that party, Jesus weeps. And he's not happy these are not happy tears because he knows that his own people who he came to have rejected him as their Messiah. You feel the emotional turmoil in that? Today, what we're going to see from John's story, John's account of Palm Sunday, is that what begins as a party, what begins as a celebration of one man's resurrection from the dead ends in an invitation for the followers of Jesus to enter into our own death, to enter into a willful surrender of our own very lives, following our King into His death so that, that in the end we might experience resurrection. 
See, Palm Sunday and Easter are like these two mountaintops of Holy Week. Palm Sunday starts off as a celebration, and Easter is the ultimate celebration for the Christian. And yet, in between is a valley. And it's a valley that is really tempting for us to skip. To just come and celebrate and then do what you want for six days and come back again on the seventh day and and celebrate again. And we're so tempting for us to skip the suffering and the death that must take place in order for there to be resurrection. Where there is no death, there can be no resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul is thinking about all of his accolades, all of the things that he could pat himself on the back. I'm this, 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 and he just lists it off. And he says, all of that is kind of worthless compared to one thing. And that one thing, he says, is to know Christ. Deeper than information, intimacy with Jesus himself. And he says this in verses 10 and 11. He says, yes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And everybody in the room says, amen, me too, Paul. Oh, I want that. I want to experience the resurrection life. Areas where we're walking in victory over sin and temptation, where we're filled with joy and peace and and patience and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. We want resurrection life. And as I look around this room, I know that many of you are in a place whether because of relationships or or physical things going on in your world or whatever it is where you feel like you are longing for that resurrection. You want that so badly. All of us do. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and the participation in His sufferings. Paul, did you have to add that? Can't we just stay with the victory? Can't we just talk about the resurrection and just be happy? But Paul actually says you you can't have one without the other. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is hard for us to think about, even think about, because we spend so much of our energy avoiding and insulating ourselves from death and suffering and hardships. I'm not going to encourage you this week to go looking for challenges and hardships. Trust me, they will find you. You do not need to look hard for them. But for so many of us, we spend so much of our life trying to hide from things that are hard We don't actually expect that following Jesus is going to require us to give anything up. We want to have all the things that are in our life, and we just want to sprinkle some Jesus on it, which means we get eternal life someday, and it's just kind of added to the good life that we already have. I want to have Jesus, but I also want my comfortable, pleasurable life where I get to be in charge. I still feel in control and I can decide what's right and wrong, and I'll take a lot of Jesus' teachings assuming they fit into the bigger picture that I see. This is exactly the message that is appealing to us in the American suburbs. Which means that some of Jesus' messages we choose to skip, or we choose to not take as seriously. 
Messages like, if anyone wants to save their life, they must lose it. That if anyone wants to be my disciple, my follower, they must take up their cross and follow me. We want the resurrection, we just don't want anything to do with suffering and hardships. The problem is this morning that the invitation of Palm Sunday is actually to come and to die, to participate in the sufferings of Christ so that we may attain the resurrection one day. Because where there is no death, there can be no resurrection. Now, there's a lot that takes place on Palm Sunday. If you grew up in the church, uh, you probably could rehearse the story or some of the basic elements of Palm Sunday. If in about, I guess about 15 years ago, there's a movie that came out. It's called Vantage Point. It's kind of this action movie. It's kind of action suspense thriller. And it, what it does is it tells the same story from eight different people's perspective. You get one person sees the events in a certain way and describes it as they experienced it. And so on, and that compiles the whole story. And that's a little bit of what you have with the Gospels. That each one of the Gospel authors gives you a little bit of a perspective. They give you one vantage point of the events of Palm Sunday and the rest of Jesus' life. And they emphasize certain details over others because they're trying to point your mind and your heart in a certain direction. A couple of weeks ago, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, Pastor Jen preached on Palm Sunday just a few weeks early. That's just how it fell for us. And he pointed out a number of things that are important that take place into this, this entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus is the true sovereign King who has come to save. That's what Hosanna means, save us, salvation. And it highlights Jesus' humility, and all those things are there. John even includes all those pieces, but he focuses on something that's just a little bit different. This morning, we're actually going to step away from the Gospel of Mark, as you heard. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in John chapter 12. And we're going to stay in John's Gospel for this week, which means that this morning, and then the readings on Thursday, uh, Monday Thursday service, and the readings in the Good Friday service, and our text for next Sunday's Easter morning will all be from the Gospel of John. Don't worry, we'll get back into Mark the following week and walk through the rest of his story, his account of Jesus' life. And all the elements are still here in this passage. The lordship of King Jesus, his humility, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, celebration, praise, and honor of Jesus. It's all there, but John actually focuses on something else. He shows us that at the heart of Palm Sunday is death and resurrection. Number one, he's going to show us that Palm Sunday itself is actually a celebration of another man's death and resurrection. Two, he's going to show us that the plan has always been death, then resurrection. And number three, it's going to be an invitation for you and I to die, to surrender our lives to surrender control, to surrender our autonomy of our lives to King Jesus, which the Bible describes as death, because it's only after death can there be resurrection. So Palm Sunday, to start off, is a story of an already death and resurrection, not of Jesus, but of Lazarus. If you caught his name, you, you saw him mentioned in this passage. And actually, Lazarus isn't mentioned in any of the other Gospels, only John. 
And John brings him up intentionally right before Palm Sunday, talks about him right after Palm Sunday, and that's it. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 12, you're going to want to, if you have your Bibles, I do encourage you to turn with me there, uh, because we're actually going to go back a little bit into Lazarus' story as well this morning. But if you look just at the verses before uh, Dan read for us this morning, starting in verses 9 to 11, say this, that meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and this is at a, a, a dinner in Bethany, the town of Bethany. And this crowd, large crowd, came not only because of him, Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. That's the intro to Palm Sunday, is that a large crowd comes and finds Jesus at Bethany. Why? Because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Verses 12 and following show the, the entrance of Jesus into Palm Sunday, into Jerusalem. That triumphal entry, that celebration. And then verse 17 and 18 bring Lazarus back in. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because, he had heard that he, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So you've got two crowds that meet at Palm Sunday at the entrance of Jesus. You have one crowd that travels with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem, and you have a crowd that's in Jerusalem that hears about what Jesus has done and comes out and meets and re-enters with Jesus. And they're all there to celebrate a resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. Turn back with me to John chapter 11, just a chapter before, and this is where we first meet Lazarus. John 11 is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I know we didn't read the whole thing, uh, but I want to just walk through a couple pieces of that chapter with us because I think there's some really important things for us to see that set up Palm Sunday and will actually bring us to this invitation that Jesus invites us to. All the way in the beginning of that chapter, we learn that there was a man named Lazarus who was sick, verse 1. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And so the sisters send word to Jesus, verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verses 4 to 6 are really interesting to me. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that, the, that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And does any of that sound a little strange to you? Because I would expect the passage to read like this. Because he loved them so much, he dropped everything he had and ran to go rescue Lazarus. But that's the opposite of what it says. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, so he stayed two extra days. And that is kind of confusing. Why? Verse 14 to 15, we realize and we learn that while he was waiting, Lazarus died. And Jesus says, let's go. Verse 17, when he arrives, he learns that Lazarus has been dead for four days, which means he's starting to decompose. He is dead. 
And Martha, verse 20, is the one who finds out that Jesus is coming, and she runs out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And verse 21, and later we'll find that Mary says the same thing. Martha and Mary say the exact same phrase. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even the crowd gets on board with this. Verse 37 says, couldn't the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this one from dying? And I love those two questions. Lord, where were you? Because if you would have been here, you could have stopped Lazarus from dying. And didn't he have power over everything? Couldn't the one who had uh, healed the eyes of a blind man, couldn't he have stopped Lazarus from dying? I love those questions. They give us permission to ask questions of God that you don't have to be scared of asking because God's not scared of you asking them. God, if you would have been here, couldn't you have changed this circumstance? God, if you're all-powerful, couldn't you have stopped this suffering in my life? And the answer is yes. Yes, he could have, but he chose not to. That's a really hard place to sit. That's a really hard place to sit. That God is sovereign over his universe, that he is all-powerful, and there is suffering. And that in his wisdom, God does not always choose to save us from our suffering and hardship and our circumstances, but he does promise to save us through our circumstances and hardships. When I think about this topic, I can't help but think about the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job is a righteous man who, from his perspective, for no reason, he loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses everything, even his own health. His life's a mess. And chapter after chapter after chapter, Job says, I want an audience before God. I want to ask him why. Why is this happening? I want to present a case as to why it shouldn't happen. And eventually God does show up. But rather than answering Job's question of why, he gives Job a better question to ask. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? I am God. I see the beginning from the end. You are this big and you see this much. I know things that you will never know. I rule over things that you didn't even know existed. I see the beginning from the end. Will you trust me? See, we think that answering the question why is the most important thing when it comes to suffering and hardship. But it's not the most important question. The most important question is, will you trust the one who rules sovereign over every event in your life, who sees all and loves you? It's the same question that Jesus asked Mary and Martha. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Because Jesus comes on and he offers two important things in the middle of their hardship, in the middle of their death, in the middle of the suffering that they're experiencing. Number one, he promises resurrection. He says, this will not end in death. Verse 23, he even says, your brother will rise again. 
He goes on and says in verse 25 to 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you trust me? He gives them the better question to ask. Do you believe that I have final say, that death does not have final word over your brother? Do you believe me that all the injustice that you see in this world around you does not have final word, that it will be made right one day, that all the sadness in this world will be redeemed, that your pain and your sin and your suffering don't have final word, that they are temporary and that they all have an expiration date? Do you believe me? Do you believe, Jesus says, that I am taking everything in your life that you experience, the good, the hard, the exciting, the heartbreaking, and I'm using it to bring about maturity in your life, to bring about Christ-likeness in you, that I'm redeeming it, and that in the meanwhile, while I promise resurrection, the second thing he offers is his presence that I'm with you in the middle of that. I will have final word, and I'm with you. Like a good shepherd, he walks with us through green pastures, and he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't abandon his children. Why does he allow certain things into your life? You may never have the answer to that question. But you will be given the choice in those moments to answer the better one. Will you choose to trust him wherever you are? There's a children's author named Jonathan Gibson who wrote this in a really profound way. Because the bottom line of that question is, can I trust God? Is he actually good even when I don't see it? And the way that he answers this is not just helpful for children, it's helpful for me. And his answer is that the moon is always round. The moon is always round. What if I can't find it? What if it's cloudy? The moon is always round. What if I don't see God's goodness? What if I don't experience the power of this resurrection that he's promised? Is he good? Is he here? The moon is always round. His goodness does not depend on our perception and experience of Him. Sometimes He is doing things that you cannot see. And even if you can't see Him, He has not abandoned you. Do you believe that? He demonstrates this in, in this chapter and probably the most profound verse in the entire Bible. I think it's the shortest too. John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. That he was present with Mary and Martha in their hardship. And John 11 does conclude, we see the end of this story where Jesus comes to the, 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 the tomb that has a body in it, says, roll the stone away and calls Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus trips and stumbles out of that tomb with his grave clothes still on fully alive. You see the promise is fulfilled with Lazarus. 
And naturally, the buzz surrounding this resurrection from the dead causes a stir. And the crowd that travels with Jesus and a crowd comes out and meets there to celebrate the resurrection of Lazarus. However, what they don't realize is it's far more than just coming to see a spectacle of a man who was raised from the dead. That Lazarus himself is actually a preview of another resurrection that's to come. See, Jesus knew that Lazarus' death would result in resurrection. He even promised it to the sisters. And he knew that the resurrection would result in the crowd's celebration. And he knew that the crowd's celebration would result in this council, the religious and political leaders, plotting to get rid of Jesus. And that in their plotting, that it would result in him being unjustly condemned and tried. And that as a result of that condemnation would be his own brutal execution. But what Jesus also knew is that just like a kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die in order for there to be new life, that his own resurrection, his own death would result in the salvation of many, and that his own resurrection would one day bring about a resurrection for all who would believe in Jesus by faith. And that resurrection is far more permanent and far more glorious than Lazarus who one day died again. That's what we celebrate it at Palm Sunday And that's what Christians have celebrated for 2,000 years, is the hope of the resurrection that is to come. And again, this didn't catch Jesus off guard because the plan, number two, has always been death and resurrection. Verse 23 of John 12, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came down and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Very similar to the night that Jesus was betrayed in Gethsemane, when he cries out, Father, if there's any way to take this cup of suffering from me, please do it, but not what I want, but your will be done. Should I ask To avoid suffering, Jesus says, no, this is my purpose. The plan has always been for him to come, to die, to be raised, so that he might not just be a kernel, but might be a life-giving spirit. God even built this metaphor into creation. Tells us that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And if you had a kernel of wheat in your hand, you wouldn't even have enough there to chew on, much less eat and be satisfied. But if in faith you plant that seed, this is gardening, right? How come every time I plant something, it doesn't actually come to life? That's just a little problem for me. I'm going to figure that out someday. But you, theoretically, you plant the seed and it must die in order to to grow into a plant. And on that plant is even more fruit. The same could be true if you've ever seen these like kind of x-rays of butterflies. The caterpillar wraps itself in a cocoon and actually is dissolved. It dies before it's reborn into a butterfly. God has built this image of death and resurrection into his creation. Jesus over and over again pulls his disciples aside and says, I must die and be raised. This is the gospel, that through Jesus' death, he becomes the one who willingly takes on your sin and mine. 
and carries it to the cross and gives his life in surrender so that the sin might, the wrath of God against sin might not be given to you, might, might fill the cup that he drank. And he doesn't leave a single drop in the bottom. That's the hope of the gospel is that you are, that, that sin must be paid for, but you don't pay for it. That Jesus dies the place that you deserve. But that he is resurrected on the third day. And that by his actions, one time, he has purchased salvation for all of his people. But that's not the part where death and resurrection stops. Because our experience of his salvation is described in the Bible as our own death and our own resurrection. See, Jesus accomplished one moment on the cross, salvation for all time. But the way that we experience our salvation comes in both the past, the present, and the future. See, we're described as those who have been saved. But the Bible also says you are being saved and that one day you will be saved. And at every one of those steps, the language of death and resurrection is used. Think about the moment you came to Christ. It is described as your own death and resurrection. Paul describes it, and he says that Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with him. To come to Jesus means you have to come to a point where you stop trying to be your own Lord and God, where you refuse to be the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, and you surrender yourself to Jesus, where you die to the idea of being in control and trying to keep improving yourself. The message of Jesus of the gospel is not to come and get a little bit of an upgrade, but it's to come and die and be reborn, be remade. This is what's symbolized in baptism. Romans 6 says that we were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you've come to Christ, you have been crucified with Christ and raised to live a new life. You've experienced a spiritual death and resurrection. And if you fast forward all the way to the end of your life, those who believe in Jesus are promised that one day, when Jesus returns, those who have died will be raised to new life and given new bodies that will never experience sin, crying, death. That's the old order of things. That stuff's gone. There will be a physical death for each one of us and resurrection. And in between that spiritual death and resurrection and the physical death and resurrection is a whole lot of little deaths and resurrection. That we are called to continue to die to the selfish desires that we have, to surrender our ability to determine what is right and wrong. Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. And Romans 8 tells us that if we live according to the flesh, if we live according to the compulsions of our sinful desires, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds, those same deeds that we talked about, then you'll find life. John Owen once described it very famously. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And this is the invitation for us today. The story has always been death and resurrection. And the invitation to you today is to die and trust that Jesus will bring resurrection. If you've never come to Christ, that is the first step. 
Jesus, I'm, I'm done pretending I can be Lord and God of my own life. And I want to surrender control of my life to you. And maybe that's where you are. Don't think the death and resurrection has stopped. This is why Jesus says anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And Jesus is not talking about loathing yourself in a way that, like, I don't like my appearance or I don't think I'm pretty or... No, it's not that. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of saying in, in total de- deference. Deference? Not sure which word that is. Deferring yourself to God, to someone else. Surrender. It's a description of someone who surrenders themselves totally to Jesus. This is what Jesus says in Mark 8, that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. To lay down your life now means that you surrender your will. It means that there's not a single area of our lives that belongs to me. It all belongs to Jesus. That there's no area of your life that you can compartmentalize and keep for myself without surrendering it to Jesus. There's no mine and his, it's all his. That includes your money, your reputation. That includes every area of your life, fill in the blank. To surrender your life, to lose your life, means we refuse to build our identity on on anything that we have accomplished or anything that can be taken from us like power or pleasure or wealth. But we belong to Jesus. To die to yourself means we refuse to believe all the compulsions that we have inside. It's a refusal to be concerned only with our own desires and our own needs, using all of our time, energy, and resources to make our life more enjoyable and pleasurable to the detriment of serving others. To die to ourselves means we battle against the sin in our own lives, that we invite accountability and live lives of integrity by the grace of God that we choose to forgive those who have wronged us instead of holding on to bitterness, that we choose to ask for forgiveness from those we have wronged, to humble ourselves before Jesus and to follow him into a life of serving others, of putting their needs above our own. In mere Christianity, I want to read a quote and then end with three questions for us to consider as we move towards the Lord's table. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says a quote here. He says, submit to death. The death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. And maybe, friends, that's where you are today. You're sitting in a place where you hear the invitation of Jesus, and the Lord is actually giving you specific things as to what that might look like for you can't answer that for every one of us individually, but the Spirit of God can. So is there something that God is calling you to die to so that you might experience the resurrection life 
that he has to offer. And know that that theoretical death cannot be just theoretical death. You can't just think about sacrifice and think about service. Theoretical death brings theoretical resurrection. It must be enacted. It must be embodied. Number two, question number two. Am I refusing to put to death any of my sinful desires which actually Christ has already killed in me? In other words, am I performing CPR on an idol or a sinful desire that I have which Christ has already crucified in me? Third question, are there weaknesses or areas of your life that are an unnecessary struggle because of something in me that needs to die? Is it some old habit, some secret sin, some root of pride, some desperate need for approval that actually continues to reap death in my life? Because following Jesus into surrender, into death, requires faith, requires trust that Jesus will bring resurrection, that he will bring the resurrection life that is now available to you through his death and his resurrection. But he knows that faith is incredibly hard, which is why he went first, which is why when he looks at us and calls us to die, he doesn't say, go ahead of me. He says, follow me. Trust that I, watch me, I surrendered my life and experienced resurrection. Now follow me. And that's the invitation this week, is to journey with Jesus through his death, seeing his resurrection, which we'll come back and celebrate next week, and ask the most important question, do you believe him? Do you believe that on the other side of death is resurrection? As we go to the Lord's table, let's pray together. Father, This, is, this call to die is very counterintuitive for us. It's scary. We think that if we do surrender to you, that we will lose life. Father, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to see exactly the places in our life where we need to surrender control to you and give ourselves to you. Father, give us eyes to see that and give us courage to step out in faith and to surrender those areas to you. And thank you, Jesus, that you went first. Fathers, we move to your table where you poured out your love and kindness towards us. Meet us in that place and change us as we fellowship with you, as we participate in your suffering. Give us the hope and the confidence in the resurrection that's to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.